The CIS critical security controls provide a prioritized path to improve an enterprise's cybersecurity posture. Version 8 includes some exciting updates to keep up with the ever-changing cyber ecosystem. The CIS controls are now task-focused and combined by activities rather than by who manages the devices, decreasing the number of CIS controls from 20 to 18. The 18 controls contain 153 safeguards, which you formerly knew as subcontrols. Safeguards are still prioritized into implementation groups, or IGs, with IG1 defining essential cyber hygiene. The updated CIS controls point to existing standards and recommendations, along with V8, supporting information, products, and services are updated and available to help you with implementation. Learn more about CIS Controls version 8 by visiting org slash controls. With your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Hey, Danny boy, what's up, man? Not much, Chris. Hey, man, when did you start serving holographic drinks? It's the future, man. Here at Barcode, we push the limits. It's all about innovation. Well, until the FDA approves that innovation, I need something next gen, yet a little less risky. I got you. This one's called the Flux Incapacitator. It's got one ounce of white rum, half an ounce of grenadine, four ounces of pineapple juice. Fill a shaker with ice, add the rum and pineapple juice, and shake it vigorously. Strain into a cocktail or double rock glass. Gently pour into the grenadine, and that's it. Walk away with 1.21 gigawatts of power in your hand. 1.21 gigawatts! Huh, well that guy seems to like it. Let me check it out, man. Damn, that's actually pretty good. Well, listen, man, a true futurist just pulled up, so... I'll see you again in the near future. All right, Chris. Be safe and time travel. I'll see you next round. Pablo Hallman is a hacker, inventor, and entrepreneur who leverages superpowers we get from technology to reimagine everything humans do. He helped start Blue Origin for Jeff Bezos, as well as Intellectual Ventures Lab for Nathan Mirvold. Currently, Pablos is a venture capitalist at Deep Future, backing mad scientists, rogue inventors, crazy hackers, 
and maverick entrepreneurs who are implementing science fiction, solving big problems, and helping our species become better ancestors. Pablos, thanks for stopping by Barcode, man. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> so, Pablo, so many angles that I want to attack this conversation from. Um, but for my listeners, I think it's important to first uh, help them understand who you are personally and, and where your story begins, right? So let's start at the core, if you don't mind. <laughs> sure. You grew up in Alaska. Yeah, I grew up in Alaska. Got into computers at a young age. Yeah, I got my first Apple II when I was about nine. So it was one of the first, one of the first Apple IIs, like I probably one of the first couple thousand Apple IIs ever made. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I can't say I know too many people that had an Apple II. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know a lot. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. And those days, so that was kind of like the first home computer, you know, the first computer that you could have at home. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, like most of your listeners probably all grew up with computers, but I'm like the first one to grow up with a computer, I guess. Yeah. So what were you into with the Apple II? Were you, uh, were you programming at that time or were you more into gaming then? So Apple II, so those days, you know, like nobody had seen a computer at all. Right. Um, and, and so it was, I had seen a computer because my dad had, had put some of the first computers in the, in the oil industry. And at the time that was, you know, the biggest industry in the world, the most wealthy. And so, you know, so that was the, you know, they, they bought computers early, but they had these, you know, mainframes and like crazy, you know, huge machines. And, um, you know, he just thought it was cool. Um, so, so he got computers set up in, uh, was it at Arco at the time. And, um, and so I kind of got to go to his office and just see this stuff. And I don't think he really understood them and I didn't really understand them, but it was, it was exciting. And so when the Apple II came out, you know, Apple was looking for customers and the oil industry just bought everything, you know, at those, in those days. And so kind of like the tech industry now. And so he uh, decided to get me a computer or just get one for the house. I, I don't know. He just thought it was cool. And, and so we got that thing and I immediately just, you know, dove in. I spent my entire childhood on that thing. And and it was such a weird time because, you know, there was certain first there was like nobody who knew more about it than me, when, even though I was like nine or ten years old. And then it was there was no internet. So like just getting software was it was like, you know, it was it was an adventure because you had to like find out who else had a computer and then like go over to their place and get, you know, and like swap floppies. Right. Which is, yeah. is not a euphemism. Like we had, um, you know, I remember like, I'm like a kid and my parents would like drop me off at some shady trailer park across town <laughs> to hang out with some skeezy old dude and, 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 and like copy his, his floppy disks onto mine. I couldn't even like, Discs were everywhere. Like these are like five and a quarter inch floppy disks. And they're like, I remember at first they were like five bucks each or something, you know? So I didn't have a lot of them. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't, uh, couldn't afford to just like waste floppy disks on stuff. And that disc had to hold the entire OS and the app and all your data. So it was just, you know, everything was so limited, but anyway, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty rough, slow going in those days. There was no, there were some games, but that, you know, games were exciting, but they were, 
you know, you had to like go trade your games for somebody else's games and you had to like, um, it's just hard to get stuff. And it's Alaska. Like if you tried to order something in the mail, you had to literally like mail a check to some other state and wait like six weeks for someone to mail you a floppy disk back in the mail. <laughs> so it was, it was just dark ages, you know, but anyway, that was, that's, that's why I learned so much. I think is I, I had a lot of, a lot of time to crash my Apple II and reboot it. Yeah. By the time you get the game, the Apple three's out already. <laughs> Apple three was a dud. Apple three was totally useless. Nobody wanted that thing. Um, yeah, it was, it was like a, a bizarre, it was like Apple's attempt to like make an Apple II compelling to business and it just completely didn't work. I didn't get my first Apple II about a year ago. Okay. All right. Cool. I've been straight windows all this time. Okay. Okay. Sure. My, uh, my first computer was a, a Tandy 5000. Oh, okay. All right. So that's- that, that was back. Yeah. That was back in the day, but no Apple, man. I don't think we could yeah, afford yeah. it. Yeah. Well, you know, it was, uh, I don't know. It's hard to afford anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so cool, man. So when, so you got that, you, you were already interested in it. When did you realize that technology was the career path that you wanted to go down? What, can you remember what hooked you or what made you gravitate specifically to technology? I, I don't think there was like ever any chance of doing anything else. Like I was, I was hooked on this Apple II. I thought it was amazing. I tried to convince everyone else of that from childhood. And, and you know, people had never seen a computer, but they were pretty sure it wasn't cool. <laughs> um, and I was really trying to, to convince people that, you know, no, this is, this is going to be powerful and useful. And someday it'll, you know, have enough memory to actually do something. And no one believed me. Um, I remember like everybody would come over. I was in a small town in Alaska, you know, so people would hear that I had a computer and they would like, come over to like see the computer it'd be like if you had a you know a giraffe living in your backyard like people would come by to see the giraffe you know it was kind of like that um yeah and and so you know people would come over and i'd take them down to the basement and show them the computer and i'd try to show them what it could do and just completely you know just to say they saw they had no conception of what i was talking about um but you know i think that had me it made me motivated to try and figure out how to convey to people why it was important and why it could be helpful to them. And I was really motivated to do that. And that kind of set me on a different course than a lot of other people who got into computers early because, you know, by the time I got out of high school or something, um, you know, computers had somewhat legitimized themselves in business and I could, um, I wanted to go use them. I wanted to put computers to use to do things for people. And so I could get hired by anybody to go put computers in a bit in a company. And that was exciting to me. And whereas going and learning about, I don't know, like computer science, um, I'm not even sure that was a term yet, you know, um, the science of computation, like how chips work and electrical engineering, that's kind of what universities were doing at the time. Yeah. And some of that I already knew, all the, like the software side of things I already knew. I understood at a very low level, like what all the ones and zeros were doing. But I, I didn't necessarily know all the, like the electronics aspect of things was still kind of mysterious to me. But 
but it didn't, that wasn't the important part. The important part to me was like, take a computer or stick it in front of somebody and, and show them how it could make their life better. That was very exciting to me. And, and so building applications and, and that kind of stuff for users and even just showing them how to use a computer, that was all exciting to me for a long time. And so I, do, I guess from the, the point is, I felt like I had this superpower from a early age of like, I could make, I could make things better than anyone imagined and using a computer. And so I kind of got hooked on computers first as a technology. And then over time, computers became so, they were so generally useful that you could use them to advance other technologies, right? And so I ended up getting drawn into a lot of other things that it, weren't, it wasn't about advancing computers as much as using computers to advance other things. And, and what I got interested in was advancing technologies. Um, you know, so by like maybe by the late 90s or something, I wasn't trying to just use computers um, in other businesses. I was trying to use computers to advance other technologies. And then, and, and then it kind of extended from there. And so now I'm just more fixated on on advancing technologies all across the board, um, even though computers is kind of where I started. Yeah. So I think over time that evolved into what you would call the, the cypherpunk era, right? Yeah. And that was more around in the early to mid nineties. I'd say mid to late nineties for me. Um, there was certainly some, some of the origin story of cypherpunks goes back further than that, but I ended up in the Bay Area in the 90s working on, um, I was at a company that was, we were trying to do cryptocurrency <laughs> uh, in the 90s. Um, and, wow. and, and that, you know, and so we had a, the kind of Bay Area cypherpunks there were working on these technologies, trying to use crypto systems, you know, cryptographic protocols to, to change the way we do things online. And my part of it was more about currency and transaction processing, but there were a lot of other things cypherpunks were focused on at the same time. And cypherpunk started in the Bay Area, right? Is that how you got involved with it? Um, I think it, I would say it started on, on Usenet. Okay. Got <laughs> uh, it. That might be, or, you know, that, that. So it was a forum essentially, right? Or a, um, yeah, cypherpunks goes, goes way back. I mean, I think, uh, depending on what you count, um, maybe the late eighties, even, you know, so there, there's a few guys who are sort of the originators of the, of the cypherpunks, um, and the, that were kind of philosophically the basis for it. So that's like Eric Hughes and Tim May in particular. And, um, and, but they really kind of got the, the whole thing started as a, as a community of people who are, you know, looking out into the future of the internet, seeing that, you know, as the internet grows, a lot of the usual societal problems would kick in and have an effect on the network. And in, in particular, um, you know, people would try to control the internet, you know, not, or people or organizations or governments or whatever. Seems accurate to me. Yeah. And in the view of, of uh, this particular group of fringe wackos on the internet, you know, they, they saw the history of people and governments, um, is being fairly poorly behaved when they get when they get control, and so so the so the cypherpunks really, I'd say the fundamental insight there was that you know we could use the cryptographic toolkit to create 
protocols that would ensure that the internet stayed free. And that these protocols could use cryptography to level the playing field. You know, we could use cryptography to create, you know, uh, internet protocols that didn't allow anyone to get control of the network. You know, no one could control what we do. We can't control what you do. And we see that as being kind of a, you know, a modern human right. And so, you know, obviously, there's a, that, that's a bit radical. Even now, a lot of people are looking to governments to exert more control over the internet and things like that. And so, you know, cypherpunks was never a, a very mainstream thing. And, and, and I think, you know, it's important to understand, like, there's no, you know, there's no application process or membership card. Like, anybody can just join that email list. Or in those days, anybody could join and, and dive in. So, you know, if you think uh, discourse on Twitter is actively hostile, well, go read the Cypherpunks archives because, you know. Do they exist? Oh, the archives are there. And this is very important. I mean, it's all public. The whole list was public. And, and it was unique because it also allowed for anonymous posters, right? Because anonymity was considered one of the fundamental things you needed to be free online. And so the cypherpunks list allowed anyone to post. There's a lot of spam and shit to filter through, but it made for very rigorous intellectual discourse. Yeah. Right. Because it, because anyone could say anything freely and the only things that were respected were the things that were technically accurate. And, um, and so, and you had a lot of, very extreme politics in the thinking behind these things, right? By extreme, I mean, you know, extreme dedication to freedom um, and, and lots of different interpretations about what that means and, and how far it should be taken and all that. But I think, you know, uh, I haven't tried to go back and read the cypherpunks archives because I, I lived through that, but, but as a historical record, I think they're very important because there's very little going on today in in the in, even in the extensive crypto and DeFi and you know web3 and all that stuff that wasn't presaged by the cypherpunks and so we had anticipated the need for this stuff it, you know i think it, what's exciting now is to kind of see that things have played out the way we'd hoped technically better than we could have hoped technically um, the, the crypto toolkit is pretty, uh, pretty highly developed now. Thanks to the hype cycle of cryptocurrency, we've attracted a whole generation of coders to that. You know, in those days, there were, I don't know, maybe 100 people on Earth who I think could code and also understand cryptography in a meaningful way. It was a very small community, and, and 99 of them were cypherpunks. So, you know, that's how I think about it. Yeah, I'd love to go back and and look at those archives and correlate yeah. what was stated then to modern day technology. So I'm yeah. sure like Oh yeah, it would be a fascinating somebody needs to write a book to doing that. I mean, it's you know, you want to read Eric Hughes and Tim May, you want to read Bob Hedinga. You know, there's there's great posts in there by by a whole bunch of different uh folks who are thinking about this stuff and trying to figure out how do we 
how do we, and then also, uh, you know, a bunch of really technical posts about, you know, advancements in cryptography and what they could enable because each little, each little advancement gave us a bit more optimism about being able to construct these protocols. Yeah, and you're talking about, I mean, the deep web, cryptocurrency, um, yeah. and just seeing how that evolved and, and, you know, who knows, there may be something in there that stretches beyond where we are now. Yeah. Well, that's what I think people don't, I mean, you know, cypherpunks may sound like a super niche thing, but, you know, we had a big effect overall. I mean, the, the, in the 90s, we, the first thing we had to do is get cryptography decriminalized, <laughs> right? Because at the time, cryptography encryption was classified as a munition by the U.S. government. Having, using a, using a, a cryptographic algorithm had the same export controls as a nuclear missile. Mm. Like you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't legally export software that used strong cryptography around the world. So we had, so that we had to fight Congress on at the time the Congress had this stupid idea called the clipper chip, which was going to be this chip that gave them a backdoor into all cryptography. Uh, that was idiotic. And we had to fight Congress and we won and not just cypherpunks, but you know, EFF and other, other groups online really fought Congress and managed to win that over. Um, that was important early, uh, early win for what we were advocating for. And then, you know, what people don't realize is cypherpunks have, um, you know, at the time, our first, I think the kind of the first successful project we built was what were called the anonymous remailers. And these were, this was a cryptographic protocol that allowed people to send email anonymously. And, um, and when was this? Like what time frame are we looking at? This was live in the 90s. Okay. We had the first, yeah. So the first ones, um, the first ones were running in the, in the mid 90s, late 90s. Um, there were, you know, successive generations of those protocols. Um, so nothing existed like that at, at that time. At the time, all email was unencrypted and wide open. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Very easy to spoof, uh, you know, and, but also um, not, I mean, uh, you know, not anonymous in the sense that, like, if you wanted to figure out where an email came from, you could read the headers and go back and figure out exactly what server it came from. So, uh, and I remember, like, uh, in the early, uh, probably around 96 or 7, I remember, like, uh, 96, I think, I was I used an anonymous remailer to email the police and report a crime. And it was some because I, I had pieced together someone I knew was stealing computers. Interesting. And I was able to figure out that that was happening, but I didn't want the someone I knew to figure out that I was the guy who turned him in because, um, you know, it was uncool. Not just, I mean, <laughs> I didn't know these people that well, but, you know, so I used anonymous remailer to email the police about that. But it's just a simple example. Of, that's the kind of thing that those things made possible. Right. And, you know, but they also got used for sending death threats to people and stuff like that, which was uncool. So, you know, occasionally cypherpunks who were running remailers would would get a knock on the door from, 
the FBI or the Secret Service, and we'd have to explain how the whole thing worked. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, the point is, so so rebellers were the, one of the early um, things that cypherpunks developed. We also had other projects with varying degrees of success. One of them was a an extension for AOL Instant Messenger called Off the Record, which was a way of adding encryption to Instant Messenger so that no one could prove, you know, who sent the message, right? Which is important because, and, and it was encrypted both ways, because, you know, what a lot of people don't realize about things like uh, public key cryptography, which is, you know, what's in, you know, in SMIME and SSL and all that stuff is, you're cryptographically signing every single thing that you do, <laughs> right? Right. And so there's there's a um, there's kind of a paper trail there that's cryptographically enforced, and that's not what you always want for every situation. So anyway, so cypherpunks went on to build the remailers. Some of them started the Tor project, uh, you know, in another context, but um, same community of people made that possible. Tor is the onion router, so that's what makes the Tor browser possible, so you can browse the internet anonymously, which is, we think is a very important thing. But if you flip Tor on its head, you get the dark web. And you can, that means you could, you could also run a service, a website or, or whatever online anonymously. And that's obviously controversial, but that's a big win for cypherpunks. And then um, BitTorrent was a big win, you know, also made by cypherpunks. And that that was a a very probably the first really big success, which is a protocol that allows people to share huge amounts of data online for free. Again, and again, this goes back to asymmetry. You know, at the you know, we're getting to a point where the only people who could afford to host large amounts of data online were Amazon and Apple and Google and Microsoft. You know, people who could have giant servers and pay for the bandwidth, and and so. BitTorrent solved that and democratized the ability to share data online. But, you know, it got used for pirating movies a lot and stuff. So people have, uh, it got controversial and entire industries hated it. But the instructive thing about it was no one could kill it. It's over. It's game over at that point. It's game over because industries hate BitTorrent, couldn't kill it over the course of, you know, we're 15 years or more now. So that's what that's the the thing. One of the really key things to understand about the difference between centralized services, and in that case, you'd use Napster as the counterpoint. Centralized service fell to us an attack, a legal attack in the case of Napster. Decentralized protocol, a BitTorrent, couldn't be killed because there's no head to chop off, and it still runs. I don't know how you know twenty five percent of the traffic on the internet or something is BitTorrent. It's crazy. Jeez. So I, 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 that's not a real number. It's um, it was pretty high the last I checked. I still don't, I don't know what it's at now. But the point is, cryptographic protocols are, are powerful, important, and so then you know where this is going. Obviously, is um, is Bitcoin, and Bitcoin was the first time we managed to succeed at making a cryptocurrency, which again we'd been trying for fifteen or twenty years at that point um, by two thousand eight. We've been trying to make cryptocurrencies, but uh, they all had problems. And one of the single biggest problems was nobody had figured out how to create a cryptocurrency with a decentralized mint. Okay. And the decentralized mint is the most important thing because that's what makes it 
impossible for anybody to cheat, right? So in every currency in human history before Bitcoin, there was somebody controlling the mint. And that somebody, without fail, ended up cheating, <laughs> right? In every currency in human history, somebody's controlling the mint and they find some excuse to issue more currency to them and their frat buddies yeah. and, and devalue it for everyone else. So, you know, there, there are lots of important things that are possible in cryptocurrencies and lots of different attributes. And you could design one to support, you know, whatever you cared about. But one of the fundamental things that had to be solved was how do you create the currency in a way that doesn't allow anybody to cheat by fucking with the value of the currency by issuing more. So Bitcoin solved that. But the Bitcoin was probably like, I don't know, maybe the hundredth cryptocurrency I had tested in my life. Oh, wow. Okay. I beta tested Bitcoin in like 2007 or eight. And at that point, I didn't know it was going to turn out to be what it did. We just thought we're trying another stupid cryptocurrency <laughs> protocol, you know? So somewhere on floppy disks, <laughs> I'm a billionaire. <laughs> so somewhere along the line, I mean, um, cryptocurrency existed, but then yeah, was it Silk Road that really took it mainstream? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think, I, I don't even know. I mean, I, like I said, I think by, by 2008, I was done with it. <laughs> okay. Um, and so. Yeah. Cause that was, that didn't happen until what, five years later. Yeah. I, I think for a lot of people, you know, Bitcoin didn't really register until maybe 2012 or 13 or something. Um, you know, by then I wasn't really paying attention. I, I like to work on things five or 10 years before the hype cycle, but <laughs> once it's going mainstream, it doesn't really need my help anymore. And so I think that, um, you know, Silk Road probably got Bitcoin some press, um, but I think what I think the real lesson is that the, you know, the advancement that Bitcoin brought of being able to create a, a decentralized mint, to create a deflationary currency for the first time ever, it became it became kind of inevitable, right? You know, I think in some sense Bitcoin is inevitable. At that once that once that breakthrough had been made, I mean, it could be ignored and it could have taken a lot of fits and starts and maybe you could characterize the first five years or so that way. But humanity is not going back. You, like you don't, when, like when you, when humans invent a new technology and prove that it works, we adopt it eventually in time. So it's not like, you know, I used the example before, like if you, it's not like humans probably invented the wheel and then decided not to use it that, that you know, maybe for a, a generation or two, you know, it was, it was controversial and some humans thought that the, the, the wheelie people were assholes and should all be, you know, lynched or whatever. And that's, that's probably, you know, the normal adoption cycle. <laughs> um, so we killed all the people using wheels, but eventually realized, Oh, you know what? This wheel thing is actually pretty awesome. And so now we do wheels. Um, and, and that's, that's really how I think about the adoption cycle for a lot of technologies is, you know, at first it's controversial and everyone's got all these imaginary failure modes that they get terrified of and they want to regulate it into oblivion. And you can see sometimes we're successful at that 
for a generation or two. You know, a good example of that in our lifetime is, is nuclear reactors have been regulated out of out of uh, being developed in in the U.S. But there's no question we should actually be building them. And I think that a lot of technologies are like that. So Bitcoin or, you know, the, the decentralized mint aspect of Bitcoin in particular. Right now, you know, it's for or at least for a while, it was like really controversial. And now it's like controversial, but unkillable. And people think that, you know, well, maybe governments are going to try to regulate Bitcoin. And in the short run, they can, you know, they can try a bunch of poorly behaved bullshit. But the truth is, if you look on longer time horizons, you know, and a century from now, Bitcoin will regulate governments. Bitcoin will regulate governments, not the other way around. That's right. The consensus mechanism that makes the decentralized mint possible is fundamentally democratic. It's fundamentally empowering. It is a better way of doing fair decision making. Uh, the blockchain gives you transparency, it gives you auditability, it gives you a much better way of governing a process than the other bullshit humans have been doing before Bitcoin, right? And, and so what's exciting now that, you know, a lot of people probably aren't paying attention to is how people are building on that. So, you know, Bitcoin is by design very limited in what it can do. But when you look at how people have advanced on that, you know, with Ethereum and these other things, and now, you know, when you look at how things are extending with DeFi and smart contracts, they're using the blockchain to create these governance mechanisms where you could have very complex interactions and you can define who's allowed to do what, when, and who's allowed to change what, under what circumstances and that. And that's very important. It's just like contract law. You know, that's why we call them smart contracts. It's like contract law. You can define the contract to allow for interactions uh, that are relevant. So even the things that people bitch and moan about with, you know, with cryptocurrency, um, you know, because, you know, cryptocurrency could be used by, you know, terrorists or pedophiles or whatever, right? So you could, you could define a cryptocurrency that, that embodies your values. Like, okay, you want to be able to unroll transactions when they're used to fund terrorist groups, but you don't want to unroll them when, you know, it, they don't need to be de-anonymized or exposed or rolled back when, um, when there's no problem or when, you know, people are using it for legitimate things. You could define all that in a smart contract. And that's, this toolkit gives you the ability to do that. The old fashioned way of doing it was kind of, uh, you know, this, this giant morass of, of, humans, um, some more well-behaved than others, you know, sort of enforcing and auditing and adjudicating every possible failure mode. So I'm very excited about the future of humans being able to create protocols that, that are used more and more for the things that, that society needs to do and get it out of the hands of, of uh, you know, these complicated and legal structures and things with screwy incentives. So I agree. I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, you always see the, the spikes with, with cryptocurrency and, and, and Bitcoin yeah. particularly. When do you see that leveling out? It is leveling out over time, right? And, and that's the way to think about it is that 
you know, if the volatility of cryptocurrency bugs you, you know, well, everything else is more volatile than Bitcoin now. And Bitcoin, you know, will become less volatile over time. And, you know, that could take, you know, I mean, it could happen faster or slower. Um, in some sense, we're already at a point with Bitcoin where it's, it, can, it can only be so volatile within a window. Yeah. Um, and, and you start to see it more. Yeah. Yeah. Bitcoin's last drop was only 50% or whatever in the last couple months. Yeah. That's not so bad. 50% drop. <laughs> That's not nearly as bad as it used to be when it was 50,000%. So <laughs> we're trending towards stable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is crazy. And I'm, I have like a Bitcoin ATM down the street from me. Oh yeah. Those are probably scams. I would stay away from that. <laughs> oh, I have, I have. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to stay in this lane of development and invention, but I want to switch over real quick to 3D printing. Um, oh, yeah. Because as you can see, I'm an avid 3D printer enthusiast as well. Cool. And, uh, and you worked as an advisor to MakerBot, um, which is a 3D yeah. printer manufacturer. Tell me about that. How you got involved with that? Well, I, I was friends with Bree Pettis um, from years before... MakerBot existed, and he. Uh, so Bree used to be. Um, I was living in Seattle at the time. Bree was a. Um, when I met him, he was a middle school art teacher, and Bree was really excited about like helping kids and people in general just learn how to do stuff, how to build stuff, how to make stuff in a very DIY fashion. And so he started this. Uh, it's so like even before YouTube, I think he started this video blog and the, nobody had done that before. It was like one of the only ones on the internet. I think it was called I make things. And, um, the video blog was Bree doing like DIY projects in his apartment. I think he like turned a VCR into a cat feeder or something and you know, things like that. And, um, and my buddy, Eric Johansson and I, we had this lab called the HackerBot lab in Seattle which was kind of what, what you would now call a hacker space um, at the time. This is like the early 2000s or something. And so we had built this robot called the hacker bot. And then, um, and then we invited other nerds to come, you know, build cool shit. You know, a lot of nerds we know, they're software nerds. They had never built anything that moved before. And so we had this shop just full of tools and things. And so nerds would come by and do weird projects and on nights and weekends. And, um, Anyway, Bree used to come by and and uh, film some of those projects for his blog, and um, he ended up making his first robots with us. <laughs> um, and so, anyway, we became friends with Bree back in those days. And then he eventually moved to he got he got famous from the blog and moved to New York and started a hackerspace there called NYC Resistor. And then you know nerds started hanging out there doing weird projects and. One of the projects they did was a weekend project to build a 3D printer. And they built the first MakerBot at NYC Resistor. Um, none of them had ever seen an actual 3D printer before. Uh, so I had a lab uh, in Seattle, the Intellectual Ventures Lab, where I was working. And I invited Bree to come come hang out there. And he, and he could see our 3D printers because <laughs> we had commercial ones. Um, and what did the commercial ones look like at that time? Weren't they just massive in size? Yeah, they were big. Um, they worked very much like a MakerBot. They were, you know, hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollar like industrial tools for prototyping. And 
you know, compared to a MakerBot or anything you've used, they were heavily over-engineered. You know, the, the, the print head was like the size of your head. Yeah. And it, you know, had a lot of thermal control for the entire bay, had, you know, had a lot of precision machined custom parts to build these things. You know, they were expensive to build and maintain and operate. The filament was all precision filament that came in a sealed cartridge with a, you know, RFID in it. So you couldn't use uh, shit filament in your machine. Um, it was, it was a lot of very tightly controlled stuff and it was just early days for 3d printing. It was low volume, high value kind of stuff. And so it was expensive, you know, no one could probably afford to do it except labs like ours. So it was pretty rare. Um, so anyway, Bree, uh, ended up and, and his partners at the time ended up starting a company to make maker bots as, uh, as kits. So they basically made a, they produced a kit out of like plywood and screws that you could buy and, and you could order the kit from them and they had like 700 screws so to assemble a maker bot took you like a month worth of nights and weekends of putting all these screws in to make it work yep. and they made a few versions of the kit and then they started uh, a, a little assembly line to to build the kits themselves and so you could buy a assembled maker bot mm-hmm. that's kind of how it started and so i yeah i became an advisor for them early on uh, mostly just to Bree helping him think through stuff around the business. I don't know how instrumental I really was. Um, he was highly motivated. Bree was really good at getting people excited about 3D printing. And, you know, they tried to do it as kind of a, a very community-oriented DIY homemaker kind of thing. Um, very consumer-friendly. Yeah, a lot of open source. Well, I don't know if, if it was consumer-friendly at first so much as like, nerd friendly right okay and at first it was really for people who wanted to build a 3d printer and what brie tried to do is turn it into a company and a product for people who wanted to build things with a 3d printer and so there was kind of that was a very difficult early transition of getting it to the point where it could be a consumer product now and so with maker with replicator 2 i think that was kind of the first one that was like you know buy the thing you could you know in a couple hours you could sort of set it up and figure out how to use it and start making stuff. And, um, and, and you don't have to finick with it constantly. And these days, you know, the finicking is still part of 3d printing, but it's a lot more, you know, there's a, a lot more support and, and, and a lot of the problems are solved. So I think it's come a long way. Yeah. Agreed. The motivation for me and what I was so excited about is, I mean, I'm a real junkie for tools. Like I love tools. I love understanding them. I love knowing how things are made so that I can be inventing on the borders of what what's possible. And if you know what the tools can do, then you can imagine what they can build. And so, and what I love the most are programmable tools. So a lot of the tools that we've had historically are very special purpose. They're specialized. They can do one thing in manufacturing. A lot of the tools, you know, if you want to make a Happy Meal toy, well, you have to make a mold and then stick it in an injection molding machine and then inject plastic in there to make those things. And that tool can only make one thing, uh, that one Happy Meal toy. And so it's not special. It's, a, it's not programmable. It's not adaptable. And a th- cool thing about a 3D printer or a laser cutter or a water jet, these are tools that are programmable. And they don't care if they ever make the same thing twice. So they're so useful for prototyping. That's what I loved about bringing... 
3D printing to to the consumer space, and that's what MakerBot did. And I'm very proud of Bree and the team there for pioneering bringing that tool. You know, my daughter grew up in a school with MakerBots. To her and to you, like that's a normal way of making something. If you want to make something, you think about drawing it in SketchUp or some CAD program and printing it. That's just normal. Which for me, growing up, I mean, I didn't have that. I was. I spent most of my early life trying to get access to tools. <laughs> you know? You're writing G code from scratch, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and so I had to learn the hard way. And, and, and so anyway, I think it's a, I think it's an exciting thing that 3D printing kind of broke through and it became kind of a mainstream thing. And MakerBot had a lot to do with that. The company ended up selling to another 3D printing company. And so I don't know how, how it's going now. You probably you're using something that's not a MakerBot, right? No, so I uh, I currently have a FL Sun QQS Pro. Okay. Um, I need to upgrade soon. Um, I haven't printed anything recently, but this is probably my third or fourth printer. Yeah, cool. So yeah, I've I've modded STLs. They have Thingiverse out there now that many people download models from, and, and yeah. you can prototype on your own. I've printed you know, the barcode logo on, on, uh, bottle openers and things like that. But uh-huh. I think that prototyping, yeah. you know, it, it, it puts that capability in the hands of, yeah. of anyone without that overhead cost. Yeah, no, it's, it's super exciting. Even if you don't have a 3d printer, you got a buddy who has one. And so yeah. there's just so much you can do. That's really, it's really cool. It's come that far. And you mentioned the intellectual ventures lab. So you've worked there on, on a, a myriad of different projects. Yeah. Brain surgery tool, a machine to suppress hurricanes, 3D food printers. And the one I need to ask you about, which you know which one I'm referring to, is the laser that can shoot down mosquitoes. You got to tell me about that one. That's that's probably our most famous invention. Um, People love it because there's just nobody who likes mosquitoes. And so... um, and really almost even the even pacifists have a death wish for mosquitoes often so it's a it's a it's a surprising for a, for like a literal death ray it's oddly popular um but yeah that machine we invented as a way of of trying to eradicate malaria or at least protect people from malaria and this is a, it's a kind of a sad it's, a, it's actually kind of an example of one of the problems that with Americans, you know, they don't have, a, they don't have a malaria to worry about. And so they don't worry about it, but this is a disease that takes almost a million lives a year. Um, and, the, and half of them are kids under five years old. And so, you know, it's a real big problem that humans need to solve. And, um, and so anyway, we were lucky to be able to uh, invent technologies to help eradicate malaria in the developing world in our lab. And, and that's because we were, we were inventing with Bill Gates and he was supporting those projects. And so one of the cool ones was this machine that could just find, find anything moving, aim a laser at it to sample the wing beat frequency. And from that, you can figure out if it's a bug and if it's a bug, what kind of bug. And if it's a mosquito, what kind of mosquito, you can figure out what species it is and even the gender. And so if it's a female Anopheles defensi, then we can shoot it down with a lethal laser and it can probably kill 
20, 30 mosquitoes a second. <laughs> That's insane. So the idea is, yeah, you would set it up as a perimeter of security around a, a building or a clinic or a village or a hospital or whatever. Damn, I need one for my backyard. Everyone wants it for their backyard. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> I think the project would have been more successful if we had just made the backyard bug zapper and sold it to Americans. I think it's sort of the, the life cycle of technologies is usually that you got to sell it for a lot of money to Americans first, get the economies of scale up, and then you can afford to go take it to the developing world later. But we, we tried to skip that, and I think it's hurt the project. But And the driver really puts it in perspective, right, where you know we in the U.S. aren't necessarily affected directly, although still we're aiming to rectify a problem for you know, many you know, millions of people yeah. throughout the world. I, I think it's, well, yeah, and it's a good example. It was a problem that affected us. So we had malaria in the U.S., but we eradicated it uh, largely by spraying chemicals that kill everything. So DDT in particular, um, and then, you know, most of the good stuff comes back, but the, hopefully without the malaria. So DDT was a pesticide that worked, and we used it at a large scale in the U.S. We got rid of malaria here, and then we just stopped working on it. You know, and, and I think that's a good thing for people to keep in mind. You know, that was a technology, the best technology we had at the time. This is in like the 30s, 40s, 50s in the, in the Southwest, in the U.S. It was the best technology, worked for us, wasn't good enough to solve the problem in the rest of the world. You know, there's much bigger landmass in Southeast Asia and Europe with malaria that needs to be covered. It's a much bigger problem. The climate is much more conducive to growing mosquitoes and spreading it. So it's just, you know, we need to invent new tools for the arsenal and we need to go solve those problems. And, you know, I think in the U.S. we've gotten kind of a, despite all the globalization stuff, we haven't done a good job of trying to solve problems at a global scale. And I think that's really important to, to course correct on. I'm about to fire my mosquito guy. He's got the spray and pray technique. Yeah. <laughs> Needs more prayer. Yeah, that's not good enough. Yeah, right. See, he's still trying the old old school tech. So, yeah, look, you, at this point, and we started that project in like 2007. You know, there's a, there's a Make Magazine issue that talks about how to make one. I think with an Arduino these days, you could probably make your own laser bug zapper on your 3D printer. And I, I think people should get on it. You know, it's not... It's not that hard to do motion detection algorithms anymore and steer a laser. Just go for it, man. Yeah. Just go for it. Um, I want to talk about hacking for a moment. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's parallel to invention. And the public is, as you know, is quick to use hacker and cyber criminal synonymously, although I'm trying to reverse <laughs> that mindset of people. But correct me if I'm wrong, but you once said that hackers should be rescued from the security department and redirected to product development, which I thought was a very, very interesting perspective. Um, would you mind expanding on what you meant by that? Sure. Yeah, I think the, I mean, look, I, you know, I've been a computer hacker my whole life. And so that was at first, no one knew what it meant. And then when they did, they were pretty sure it meant criminal. Um, and, you know, I, I like to, um, at least pretend like I'm not a criminal. Um, <laughs> that's not what I'm trying to do. Uh, but, but, and I, it's not what I care about 
for hackers. And the truth is most hackers in like in the US are not criminals. You know, the economic opportunity for somebody who can configure a firewall is is better than the economic opportunity of stealing credit card numbers and competing with, you know, Romanian hackers who are who have that covered. So I just think that it's a there's a lot a lot of the criminal hacking activity is not coming from the US. And the truth is in my mind, hackers more kind of more narrowly defined, you know, my friends are the people who, you know, they have insanely curious minds, like they're trying to solve puzzles and computer security problems are just like a, a bottomless pit of puzzles to solve for them, right? It's not, they're not trying to steal anything. All they're trying to do is, you know, brag to their friends that they cracked a puzzle before anyone else you know that's what that's what i used to be doing and that's what we were always doing is like you know trying to impress other hackers <laughs> and so i think there's just a you know what i love about ha- hackers and the sort of hacker community at large is it it attracts a, a certain type of curious intellect and um and those people are really good at figuring things out that that the rest of the world's never going to figure out you know, they're good at figuring out what's technically possible. And that turns out to be where all your new inventions come from. It's where all your new technologies come from. And you really can't skip that step. Somebody has to, has to do the thing that was not printed in the directions, right? And that's so important for humans. It's how we evolve as a species. It's how we advance as a civilization. We should really be celebrating these people who are um who are good at discovery and you know that overlaps with scientists a bit it overlaps with invention a bit you know it's these are not you know rigorous terms but but yeah that's what i love about hackers and you know for a long time i think uh, i saw our best hackers end up at you know these big companies trying to like configure an ids or something and you know that's okay it's that's good and it's important somebody should do it and probably all of us should do it for a while but you know but then start thinking about where else can you go with that skill set and it's sort of less an admonishment of hackers and more for everyone else in the world you know most companies don't realize that they have these you know real geniuses in the company who they can't figure out how to relate to they can't figure out how to communicate with and they can't figure out how to put them to work on something more important and so i think it's so in my mind that's that's you know i'm trying to figure out how do we invent new technologies and bring them into the world at a larger scale and i need those folks as allies and i need everybody else to see them as allies you know in our corporations, I need people to understand that, you know, the hackers in the IT department are actually the ones who are going to come up with the next generation of technology that you should be bringing into the world. And, and right now there's a massive disconnect there. That's just not a normal thing. Nobody else besides me says that nobody's even trying. That's not what's going on. And so we just have a lot, uh, of these, uh, gaps to solve. And, yeah, so that's how I think about it. I agree 100%. I think that we pigeonhole that term. Yeah. And and even coming into the industry, you know, quote unquote hackers could potentially feel pigeonholed um, 
you know, within their own job function as well. So, yeah, yes, I do believe that by allowing that exploration, exploring those other options, you know, that's how we continue to grow. That's how we continue to innovate. It has come a long way. I mean, you know, I'm probably one of the first hackers to publicly say I'm a hacker, you know, uh, because in those days, you know, it was synonymous with criminal. Even other hackers would say they were, you know, a computer security professional or something, you know, or or developer or coder or something. They wouldn't say they were a hacker. So I started that very early and and, and took a lot of that heat. Uh, But now, you know, Facebook and Google have billboards saying they want to hire hackers. So we've come a long way. And I think that's really good. I think it's, you know, it's not like, look, the hackers historically have been kind of uh, poorly socialized. And I think a lot of times hackers took that on as a badge of honor. And, um, and, and you know, we optimize for being snarky and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, not haven't made themselves the most accessible to other folks. And so it's, there's a little responsibility there too, but um, I think, you know, you got over time and the older you get, the more mature you get, even for hackers, you know, some of them eventually learn to like appreciate other people and their skills. (laughs) Even the people in the marketing droid department are important, you know, so you gotta, you kind of got to learn to get along with everybody. And I think that that's, you know, we've seen some of that and it's been very helpful. So. I'm optimistic that over time, you know, revenge of the nerds will win. <laughs> yes. I'm pulling for the nerds. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> so Pablos, you, um, you, you've been ahead of the curve essentially since you were a kid, yeah. you build tech for the future. Um, I have to ask you this. And since I'm a back to the future fan, I'm gonna phrase it like this. Okay. You and I get in a DeLorean. We fast forward 30 years <laughs> What does technology look like? Well, I think, you know, I think 30 years is a good window. That one's a little bit hard. Um, It's interesting because 30 years is kind of two or three generations deep as far as like funding and tech cycles go. Right. And so it's hard to predict out there. And, and, uh, And the way I think about it is, you know, I could I think I can tell you what technologies are coming. It's hard for me to put them on the calendar, right? Like I don't, because again, humans can kind of fuck it up in the short run, but in the it's in some sense, like a hundred years is easier because all the technologies that we're developing now that are working, that are good. And by in a hundred years, they can be ubiquitous, mm. right? In the, in the short run, humans can kind of fuck it up. Yeah. So I think the, um, the 30 year window is more of a question of like, you know, are we going to aggressively adopt the technologies that that can make a difference, or are we going to keep bitching and moaning and squandering our lives on season two of Netflix or whatever? <laughs> so it's just it's just that that's kind of the game you're playing. But anyway, I think you know, chief among all all technologies, uh, you know, that are important are the ones that can solve energy. Right? Humans are made of energy. Everything we do is fundamentally maps to energy. Americans right now, we get nine times as much energy as the average human. You know, there, there are 3 billion people who live on less energy than your refrigerator uses. And it's just, you know, that is, 
that if you want to talk about the problems in the world, inequality, everything, it just maps to energy. We have to solve that. We've got to get the world from five terawatts to 50. And that's how you, that's how you make the world peaceful. That's how you make the world fair. That's how you make the world, you know, much better. So, so the technologies that can solve energy, we have some awesome ones. Nuclear reactors, if we had not outlawed them in the 80s, you probably never would have heard of global warming, right? This is something we could have, we could have prevented if we had taken this miraculous energy source, continued to improve on it, build modern safe reactors. I'm saying that because we invented a modern safe reactor at our lab 15 years ago. Um, we're still not allowed to build it because of the U.S. regulations on nuclear reactors. So I think that's fucked up. Um, I hope that on the time horizon you're talking about, we solve that. I'm optimistic that we will. A lot of the things that made nuclear unpopular, those ideas are dying with the with the generation that outlawed them <laughs> uh, soon. And, you know, my kids growing up in a world where they're just those, you know, they're going to just wonder like, why the hell aren't we doing this? It's carbon free. It scales. It makes sense. It works in the dark and during a snowstorm. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Um, it is fucked up because you're looking at regulation, right? That's right. It's just humans. It's, it's not a technology problem. It's a humans, human decision making problem. So, yeah, that's one. I think uh, I, I'm uh, interested in space based solar arrays, which is, a lot less in people's consciousness, but solar panels, if you put them in space, they get sun 24-7 all year long. They get eight times as much energy, and they can beam it down to Earth anywhere on the planet. So I think that is a technology that is uh, now is the time to develop and deploy it. Um, I'm very excited about that one. Um, I'm, I'm sort of less... Uh, excited about recycling and carbon capture and and these things because I think they are the, the economics don't make sense and they don't scale so well and you know it's important to develop them and and, and do the best we can but if you want to really solve solve these problems it's going to come down to making a lot of cheap clean energy and as this technology evolves um, cybersecurity is evolving as well. Yeah. So I assume that, um, you know, our industry is going to continue to grow as well. Well, no kidding. I mean, with cybersecurity, I mean, I remember back in, you know, up until 2001, you couldn't give away a pen test. <laughs> no. We would literally go, I mean, I have friends, I mean, all my friends working in security. I, I was too at that time, actually. Like I would, you know, we would try to go jump up and down, wave our arms. We would literally hack into companies in a mercenary fashion. We would go show them, look, we stole all your shit. Want to hire us to prevent somebody else from doing that? That's how, and then you still couldn't make the sale. So <laughs> it was, and then in 2001, after 9-11, everybody got security as a line item on their budget. And, they, and so now companies, as you know, you know, it's, it's sort of less about actually making things secure and more about just the, you know, being able to prove that they spent some money and pass the buck. <laughs> um, a check mark. Yeah, a check mark. So I think that's frustrating, but, but there is obviously a market. The market's full of, you know, snake oil salesmen and a lot of bullshit, but there's some legitimate things out there and some, and some talented people and, there's, and it's highly evolved. And, and, you know, it's a war of escalation. So 
it's not getting any less relevant and and we've evolved from the you know the opportunistic fraud and sort of consumer crap to now very highly evolved you know nation state hacking stuff that that it's 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 getting very important so yeah <laughs> um yeah so i think uh, i couldn't predict what's going to happen next year it's so rapid more of the same and worse <laughs> so, <laughs> and probably cheaper for the attacker yeah probably um, cheaper. there you go the ais that using ais on the offense is getting getting pretty interesting i would go look at like codex uh look at the ais that have that have soaked up github like being able to like automate the ability to find and write exploits off of that stuff i mean there's a lot of a lot of exciting frontiers there and that's a whole nother conversation yeah. is getting into yeah. ai but um all right last question and then we'll wrap it up yeah time travel will that ever exist oh is that a technology <laughs> that we're going to see in our lifetime now you're out of my jurisdiction no i haven't <laughs> seen anything that makes me think we can do it um yeah well i mean i mean you're no. making science fiction real so i had to ask so there's a i think there's an important distinction you know there's there's things that require breakthroughs um which don't really happen on a schedule you know we do get more and more breakthroughs because our toolkit's better but some of these things, you know, may happen tomorrow and they may happen in a century. They may never happen. And it's really difficult to, to guess when the breakthroughs are coming. I'm still holding out. Yeah. Time travel, you know, it, it's probably likely to happen for some kind, very narrow kinds of like information first, but moving you and me around in a, in a DeLorean is unlikely. I can see that. Yeah, because you have AI predictive algorithms and and forecasting. So as that improves, as time goes on, you're going to be able to predict better, which may, yeah, be able yeah. to in turn predict future happenings. Yeah, or through some nasty trick of physics, be able to see what variables are coming before they arrive. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's 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 not. My it's not going to happen in my lifetime because I always promise myself <laughs> I'm coming back to tell myself. Oh. And I haven't told myself yet. Yeah. So, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> leave, uh, leave YouTube videos for your descendants. <laughs> yes. So Pablo, you've, you've ventured the world, um, you know, articulating your visions to others about the future of technology and, and in all of your travels, since this is barcode, I have to ask you this question. Sure. Where's the coolest bar you have ever been to? <laughs> coolest bar I was ever in was in, uh, in Tel Aviv. Okay. Do you remember the name of it? Um, it had a Russian name. I forgot the name of the bar. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, that place, Tel Aviv is awesome. Uh, there's probably a lot of cool bars there. Awesome. Never been there, but it's on my list now. Yeah, it should be. That's the most exciting place for anyone into tech. Cool. Uh, so I just heard last call here. Do you have time for one more? Oh yeah. If you opened a cybersecurity theme bar, what would the name be? And what would your signature drink be called? The bar would be called Caesar's Challenge. Um, we used to have a party at DEF CON called Caesar's Challenge. And a hacker named Caesar hosted the party. He had to be pretty elite to get into this party. But if you got in, Caesar would issue a challenge to everybody at the party. 
and provide unlimited free booze. And the challenge would be like, you know, a, a question like, you know, what's the what's the minimum number of bits required to do remote exploit on an AS400? Something like that. Okay. And you'd have all these hackers getting drunk, hanging out, trying to like solve this challenge uh, all night long. And what was so important about this is it, it gave, you know, sort of poorly socialized hackers something to talk to each other about. That was a very important insight that Caesar had is that nerds don't know how to socialize. So you got to get them drunk and you got to give them something to talk about. And if you give them something technical that none of them are really know a lot about, they can all sort of argue all night and it's awesome. So Caesar's challenge was the best party for hackers that ever existed. Um, you know, this is ancient history now. I don't, I don't know that. I mean, most of us probably don't even make it to DEF CON anymore. I was there, was there last. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, that, that, that would be the ultimate cybersecurity bar, Caesar's Challenge. That, that is fucking awesome, man. I love it. I love it. And so yeah. would your drink be like? Um, the drink would be called, um, oh man, uh, that would be, that's a good one. Uh, what would the drink be called? I think it would be called um, Whopper. Whopper. <laughs> Whopper is the name of the giant computer in War Games, which was the only, which was the only good hacker movie ever made. <laughs> I love it, man. Hey, Pablo, thanks again, man. I really enjoyed speaking with you, and and I really appreciate you sharing your your insights and your visions with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Good luck, and and really great to hang out with you guys. Thanks, man. Take care. All right, bye. As you know, Barcode is where security and IT professionals hang out after a long day. So get your message front and center to our fans by sponsoring an episode. Learn more at the barcodepodcast.com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.